James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by the fact that you would choose to reveal yourself in such great detail through the pages of your word. Certainly, Lord, we know that we can look up into the heavens, we can look at creation, we can contemplate our existence and come to the conclusion that you are there, that you exist. But Lord, you have blessed us with a particular revelation of your heart, of your mind, of your will through the pages of your word. And Lord, may we take advantage of that revelation. May it be the the source of our life. May it be the the foundation upon which we live. And Lord, may we uh, seek to know it uh, more and more and more as we grow in our walk with you. And so Lord, this morning, as we come to another passage in the book of James, allow us to be humble before you, to be teachable. And Lord, allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece to allow your people to see what it is that you desire of them. And Lord, uh, help us now, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, friends, it really doesn't matter what form of government you think is best, unless it's a theocracy, of course, that's a government where God rules and reigns. There will always be a class of poor, and there will always be a class of rich. You hear a lot of the arguing going on in society today, but even with a, a, a socialistic society, there's going to be the rich people and there's going to be the poor people. It's just a reality, friends. In our country, we really don't have much of a category for the poor. You're like, well, wait a second, Pastor Rod. There are poor people. Yes, there are. There are homeless people. There are people who are struggling. But, but even with what we have, those have so much opportunity. The, the, the poor in our country does not compare to the poor in other, uh, other countries. Poverty in San Francisco, if you remember, a few years ago was a 117,000. There are people around this world that would love to have that. Now, I, I realize it's, it's based on the region in which you live. Now, certainly there are those who, who, who are homeless, but look, I've seen people who are homeless who are walking around with iPhones and expensive sneakers and drive cars and go to Disneyland on vacation. It happens. People that consider themselves poor, yet they're living in the United States of America. <laughs> and poverty has its own kind of context and a word that is used in that context. And many have learned even how to exploit the welfare system of our country And so there's definitely a category for the sinfully poor. Then in every culture, there are the rich, the wealthy, and they often use their wealth to get more wealth, to maintain an influence, and to exercise power. And again, there's definitely a category for the sinfully rich. Being rich or being poor, friends, is not a crime. You can be poor and honor God with your limited resources and your life, but it also comes with its own unique challenges and temptations to sin. Coveting, envy, stealing, hatred, anger, strife, rebellion. But you can also be rich and honor God with your abundant resources and your life, 
But wealth comes with its own challenges and temptations to sin. The real question isn't, are you rich or poor, wealthy or broke? The real question is, where is your hope? Is your hope in money and possessions in this world? Or is your hope in Jesus Christ and in the riches of eternity? These are the words of Jesus here, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Where is your hope? What masters you? Who masters you? So that's the question for us this morning. Which one do we serve? Which one do we put our hope in? In which of these do we seek contentment and joy and pleasure? Is it money or is it God? Now, our text today focuses specifically on the wealthy. It's a rebuke for those wealthy people who are not stewarding the resources God has given them in a way that honors him. But they have allowed the wisdom of the world to rule their hearts. And you say, well, where do you get that? Well, James is speaking in a context. He's already laid a foundation earlier in his book, and he's talked about now how the wisdom of the world is what shapes our hearts. And then he goes on and speaks on different topics about you can do it God's way, or you can do it the world's way. And we're coming now to a text where it's clear that these, these illustrations or these, these words are speaking to people who have had their hearts ruled by the wisdom of the world, in particular as it relates to finances. And Jesus may, sorry, James may be speaking specifically about unbelievers, but he is writing a letter to believers. And so this is not something we say, well, yeah, I'll look at those people out there. He's saying, I want you to hear the same message, and I want you to learn from it. And James may be giving this rebuke as a way to encourage his readers to be patient, that even if they're under the thumb of the sinfully wealthy, the Lord is coming and judgment is on its way. If you look at verse 7, you'll see that. Be patient. So what we have here is a warning against the pursuit of worldly wealth. Now, by worldly wealth, I don't mean to say that the pursuit of wealth is evil, but rather the worldly pursuit of wealth is sinful. There are two different ways of pursuing wealth. One is God's way, seeking to honor him, making a living. And the other way is fashion and shape by the world's ideas. And James is saying, I want to I challenge this worldly way of thinking when it comes to your wealth. So James 5, 1 through 6 serves as both a direct rebuke to rich non-believers who are oppressing the poor and a subtle indirect warning to rich believers who were ignoring the poor. So James is not condemning wealth here, but the sinful use of wealth. And friends, when the wisdom of the world has gripped the heart of a Christian and they are now pursuing riches in line with worldly wisdom, there will be trouble. And friends, when we live in such an affluent society as we do here in the Bay Area, this is a topic that we need to pay attention to. We need this warning. We need to hear this rebuke. We need to see the effects of the wisdom of the world on wealth because we have it in abundance. Now, my encouragement to you this morning is to be humble and to be teachable. And to hear what James is saying. You may be struggling in this area, and it is his kindness to bring it to your attention. Or you may be doing well in stewarding your resources in a way that honors the Lord, but with the wealth 
There will always be temptation to abandon God's ways and to embrace the wisdom of the world. And friends, as we've been saying for the past few weeks, there's not a person in this room who isn't affected by this text. All of us are going to walk away this morning having interacted with this text, and this text is speaking to our hearts. Why? Because every day we deal with money. Every day we have to make decisions, and they can be decisions that are flowing out of motives that have been shaped by the wisdom of the world, or they're decisions that are flowing out of motives that have been shaped by the gospel, by the words of Christ, or by the counsel that we have in the New and Old Testament. So just considering the structure, how does this flow? We basically have a, a topic mentioned uh, in verse 1. It's a warning. And then we have some reasons for that warning, verses 2 through 6. So we're going to spend a bunch of time here in verse 1, and then we're going to flesh out the actual reasons for the warning in verses 2 through 6. The danger, then, of worldly wealth. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for the miseries are coming upon you. What does that sound like? sounds like an Old Testament prophet speaking. This is actually language that an Old Testament prophet would use. Weep, howl. And here James is using this language because he wants his readers to grab an understanding of the, the importance of this struggle. To weep means to cry aloud. To howl means to shriek with grief. And James is speaking boldly and forcefully in this text, and there is definitely an emphasis on judgment in the end. Look at verse 1. He speaks about the miseries that are coming. In verse 3, he speaks about the last days. In verse 5, he references a day of slaughter. In verse 7, he promises the coming of the Lord. In verse 9, he says, the judge is standing at the door. So there's this context now in which James is speaking that has some language of judgment, of the Lord's return, of his coming, and having to, to, to face that. So, so this, this context and this text is oozing with the language of judgment. And in verse 1, we're told two things about the coming judgment on the wealthy. First of all, we're told that God's judgment on the wealthy is severe. He says, miseries are coming upon you. The idea of misery means wretchedness, distress, trouble. These people are going to undergo a terrible ordeal. And these people probably viewed their, their abundance of wealth as a means by which they could avoid pain and suffering. They could live their lives in ease and comfort. But James declares that their wealth will not save them this time. Weeping and howling are not words that express the spirit of repentance here. They're words of anguish because of the impending judgment. A.T. Robinson, uh, who's a kind of an expert on the language, translates these words, burst into weeping, howling with grief. This is not where you want to be. Clearly, their judgment will be severe. Secondly, God's judgment on the wealthy is certain. The miseries are coming upon you. Now, friends, this language here is what is known as a future present, a prophetic present, a present tense of a future event, speaking to people about what's going to happen to them in the judgment as if it's happening right now. This is how the prophet spoke. So it's a rhetorical device that is used now to gain the attention of the readers. Douglas Moose says this background makes clear that the misery that is coming upon the rich refers not to earthly 
temporal suffering, but to the condemnation and punishment that God will mete out to them on the day of judgment. So now James wants us to feel the weight of his words, the weeping and wailing, the severity and the certainty of judgment. Listen to Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 6. Wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty will come. Now, I'm not saying that that's a, that's a fulfillment. I'm just saying here's the kind of language that you find in the Old Testament from a prophet. It's the same thing that's happening here with James. So James is speaking like this Old Testament prophet, pronouncing judgment upon the rich. He is condemning those who've misused their wealth, who've hoarded their wealth, who've put their hope in their wealth. They have mistreated and oppressed the poor, and for all that, they are condemned. Now, friends, money itself is not the problem here, is it? Being wealthy isn't inherently evil. The problem is the love of money, the love of possessions, the, the ignorant assumption that this life is what matters. It's the pride in thinking that because you have more money than someone else, you are somehow more important. These are the sins of the heart that accompany worldly wisdom and its approach to money. Many people wrongly quote 1 Timothy 6.10, don't they? They say, money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It actually says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's a heart attitude. It's not the money. It's the heart and its attitude toward that money. And we keep reading. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul, even there in 1 Timothy, is warning about the wrong attitude toward money and the danger that it brings. James is saying something very similar here. So the Bible doesn't condemn, condemn wealth. And I realize that much of the rhetoric in our culture you hear is, oh, you know, these 1% people, these people that have all this money. God is not condemning wealth. What the Bible speaks a warning against is the love of money that bears fruit in sinful behavior and has become the source of a person's hope. So friends, when we understand it in those terms, there is a struggle for people who have a lot and there's a struggle for people who don't have much. Just reflect on the kind of behavior that you saw on video on the opening of the stores on Black Friday. Did you guys see those things? Well, here's your homework assignment. I mean, you have these videos of people all standing on the, it's at Target, and there's the doors, and the workers are back there, you know, and the doors are like bulging, literally. And they open the doors, and we're living in a very respectful and ordered society, aren't we? And people just start coming through, and they're like, they're running, and then someone falls, boom. And then people start coming. They don't, person's on the ground, you're bad luck, man, I'm going by. And you have this mass of people all gathered together. Then you get to the TV area. People are lifting up TVs, and people are taking TVs from the people that are lifting up TVs. It's just a madhouse. Why? Because we have to have that item because it's $30 cheaper. All of that is a reflection of the sinfulness of man's heart. Now, if you want to go Black Friday shopping early in the morning, go with a camera. It's probably the best thing to do. Don't go to buy anything. Just take it all in. But friends, this is the kind of stuff. There's a hunger and a desire for possessions that bears fruit in chaotic, self-centered, sinful behavior. Because I want that TV. So friends, understand this. Riches and wealth are a danger to your soul. Your money can be used in wonderful ways for the kingdom of God. 
but it can also be a major temptation and preoccupation in your life. So beware. And there's a point here for those who are poor. Don't envy the wealthy. (laughs) Don't lust after riches. Don't be content, or sorry, be content with what you have. And be thankful that you don't have the stumbling block of wealth as a potential hindrance to your relationship with him. I know you've probably all wondered this before. If you got a certified letter from some lawyer somewhere saying to you, oh, by the way, you have a long-lost relative who is very, very rich, and you are the next person in line based on their will or whatever, and you're going to get all this money. What would life be like if that happened to you? Oh, I could, I could pay off my home. I could pay off my parents' home. I could give to the church. I could take that vacation around the world. There's all sorts of things you could do. But are you really ready for the trials and temptations that accompany wealth? I don't think that we think that far ahead. Again, if you want to do it, do a Google search about athletes who have been earning millions and millions of dollars who now have nothing because they did not know how to actually steward their resources. Are we really aware of the way that having wealth can change your character and move you away from God if it is not handled carefully? Now, friends, just for context perspective, let's consider what James has said already in his letter. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's all happening in the arena of the heart. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And friends, this is a reminder to us that none of us in this room is exempt from struggling with what to do with finances. Because we all face the struggle of the wisdom of the world and battling with the wisdom of God. Now, as James moves on, he's going to lay out for us four fruits that often accompany the pursuit of worldly wealth. And again, if you recall what James says in chapter 1, at verse 9, this is what he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises With its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And if you remember back then, we said the issue isn't just riches. The issue is this is where my hope is. And with that backdrop, then here we have now from James once again a vivid picture of how fleeting life is and how fleeting the riches of this life are. We'll begin here with what I'm calling the problem of hoarding. Let's read verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days." Now, friends, in the first century, people didn't have banks or savings accounts. Instead, they would accumulate wealth in three basic ways. Food, having an abundance of grain and food to eat. Clothing, and then, of course, precious metals of various kinds. Those who were wealthy then ate well, dressed well, and they spent their resources lavishly. Now, at the end of verse 3, we're told that These wealthy people laid up treasure in the last days. That expression, laid up treasure, has the idea of hoarding. 
They're just storing up things in the last days. Now, this expression, last days, is not meaning the last days of a season. The last days basically are from the time when Christ left to the time of his return. All of that's considered the last days. But their habit then is that they are storing resources in barns, in places, and just hoarding them. So the words and phrases that are used here by James are the same ones that Jesus uses when he says the following. This is Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And it's interesting through the book of James how much he is actually referring to the words of Jesus in his arguing. A lot of similar language. So in these last days, as we anticipate the return of Christ, it is especially important to keep our eyes fixed on eternity. And we must store up our treasure there, not here. But what happens to your stuff when you hoard it? Well, food eventually rots, right? I think we cleaned out our our pantry just a couple of weeks ago, and then even our refrigerator, because, you know, Thanksgiving forces you to say, I need more room, what's in here I can throw out. And we're like, oh, how come this is still in our refrigerator, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? It's like, why, why did we keep it here, you know? It's way past its, its sell-by date. Garments get moth-eaten, and therefore they're useless pieces of clothing. Precious metals degenerate in some way, and so they lose their value. Friends, this is still true today. It's just a little different context. You put your money in stocks and bonds, and suddenly what you thought you had is now gone. You put your dollars in a bank, and inflation eats it away. The housing market can tank. Your house, your car, your boat are all subject to deterioration and destruction and theft. And James is saying, even if you're able to hold on to some of your earthly treasures throughout all your life, death will force you to let go of them all. And that's why in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're told that all things of life are really vanity. They're all ultimately empty because they are transient. They don't last. When you die, you'll take out with you exactly what you brought in. Nothing. And so, friends, when you hoard your wealth, it will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Again, that's prophetic language. What does this warning against hoarding mean for us then? Just a couple of thoughts here, guys. It's a thought to evaluate, first of all, the kind of way that you're using your money. Are you you being wise in your investments? Are you giving to the church? Are you um, careful about how you're spending? Or are you just hoarding? And listen, friends, I understand. We're in a culture, we're in a society that values retirement. Everything's store up for retirement, store up for retirement. And, you know, I'm, I'm just like you saying there's a value in that, but we can do that so much that we are misusing the resources in a way that maybe God wants to use them for his glory. Cleaning out your closets in your garage. We talked about this last week because it was relevant. Learning to share your resources with, with others who may be in need rather than simply storing it away. Hoarding, as a practice, has all kinds of implications. It can be a reflection of pride for the one who just wants more and more. It can be a reflection of laziness for the one who would rather build a building and stuff it full of stuff rather than get rid of the stuff. It can be a reflection of insecurity that to lose one of these items is to to leave oneself vulnerable. It can be a reflection of comfort, giving me false assurance that I am rich. But friends, hoarding can also be a sinful waste 
of resources. People you know are struggling and going through hardships. You may have the money, the resources, the food, the goods to help them in their time of need, but you don't because you've hoarded it away. And if you have a hoarding mentality, you won't look at those resources to help others because they are there to meet your needs. So is hoarding testifying against you? My wife and I enjoy watching a TV show called American Pickers. You guys ever seen that before? If not, that's another homework assignment for you, okay? It's actually very interesting. These two guys are antique dealers, um, more kind of um, old, ancient antiques that you find like in a uh, you know, in someone's garage. And so it's Mike and Frank, and they basically travel around the country in this, in this car. They have someone that calls ahead to see if anyone has some things that has some ideas. But a lot of times what they do is they do this, this cold calling, and they just drive around. They're looking for someone who has a big barn. And they're just chancing about the fact that, you know, there might be something in that barn that's worth something. And they stumble on these homes where people have barns full of stuff. I mean, and people just collect this stuff over the years, or they've been given stuff, or they have the habit of going to, to some kind of a flea market, and you have to come away with something, right? They just constantly have this stuff, and so they, they start digging in all this stuff. And usually they find something under, you know, on these mouse droppings and dirt and all this junk thrown there, but at the bottom they find like a beautiful sign, old ancient sign, and they look at the person and say, you know, would you be willing to, you know, to part with this? Because they understand that the people who own these places probably are going to have a hard time. Why? Because they've been hoarding this for years. And oftentimes, it's really interesting to see how these people respond. It could be something so insignificant, something they're saying, $20, I'll give you $20 for it. And the person's like, ah, oh, I just don't know that I can part with that. I just don't know. And, and, and these guys, they've, they've done it so long, they understand the emotions of what these kinds of people go through. But friends, hear this. Hoarding doesn't just happen like that. Hoarding also happens with us, I might say, regular people. And God comes to us and he's saying, could you part with that? Uh, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I could part with that. Someone else could actually probably use this. Someone else could benefit from this rather than it just sitting in your garage or your shed or wherever it might be. Someone else could do this. My wife and I have been blessed through the years as our children grew with secondhand clothing. Anyone here been the recipient of that? Yeah? It's okay. It's okay to receive clothes that someone else has worn, especially baby clothes, right? Because they grow out of them so fast. But why is it that that kind of stuff has not happened in other areas, why is clothing the only other thing? You know, maybe you have a tool that someone else can actually have. Well, maybe your experience is that you've actually loaned people tools and they never come back, right? I understand that. But, you know, it's, this, it's an attitude of the heart here. And with worldly wisdom comes one fruit, and it is the fruit of hoarding. It's mine. I've got to have it. I've got to keep it. And to let it go is a really hard thing to do. Secondly, let's consider what James says. Not only is there a problem of hoarding, but there's a problem now of injustice. This is verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who moved your fields, which, kept, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So what's happening here is there's an injustice that comes by way of stealing and keeping back by fraud. The wealthy people hired laborers to come in, do agricultural work, but they were not paying them. What they promised, they were not doing. Instead, they robbed and cheated these laborers in their fair wage. Now, friends, this is a kind of greed that withholds what is rightfully another simply because you have the power to do so. This was a direct violation of the Mosaic law, which specified and condemned this kind of behavior. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. It's worth us reading this 
to help us understand God's economy. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out, uh, cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And yet what was happening here with these rich is that they were holding back these resources from those who were common laborers who were dependent on those daily monies so that they could buy food and just be sustained. And the reason we're given here in Deuteronomy for this prohibition is the extreme poverty of the worker. They didn't have a credit card. They couldn't say, you know, I'll go ahead and cha-ching it this time and I'll, you can give it to me tomorrow. They didn't have that privilege. They were living hand to mouth. I don't know if you remember the, the name Leona Helmsley. Some of you younger generation have no idea who I'm talking about. But back in the 1980s, she was considered the queen of mean. And she was um, a, a lady who, who owned and operated uh, hotels in New York City and was also a real estate investor. She became very, very well known because um, she was in court for tax evasion. And in that court session, one of the maids that worked for her was a key witness, and she gave this testimony because this is what she heard Leona Helmsley saying. Only the little people pay taxes. Now, friends, there's this attitude then that comes with wealth that says that I, I don't have to do those things because I'm wealthy. I'm not responsible. It's, it's for the common people, not me, not we who are wealthy. Why, why is it that those who are already wealthy cheat or rob the poor? Well, here's some thoughts. I think just biblically speaking, it's because they're, all, they're always wanting more and more and usually get more at the expense of the poor. It is that desire for more and more that corrupts our character to the point that we will rob and cheat and steal and get what we want. Did you notice that those laborers, these harvesters, who have been defrauded cry out to the Lord of hosts and he hears them? And friends, this is often the case that on earth the cries of the oppressed are not listened to. But just like we heard in, Je in, in Job and now also in James, we have the assurance that the cries of the oppressed are heard in heaven. God is fully aware of injustice. And what's sad, though, is that there are those who have wealth who will exercise injustice in particular, on the poor. Now, friends, whenever we get so wrapped up in the pursuit of wealth that we stoop to stealing and cheating, James wants us to never forget that there is always one person watching with great interest, ready to judge those who are cheating. What is your attitude when it comes to your finances, in particular when it comes to those who may have less than you? Now, I know in today's society, you see someone standing on the side of the road with a sign. You're not sure whether you should do anything or not because it's become, I don't know, it's become, uh, you know, it's not, it's, you don't know whether it's real or not. You know, when you go someplace and there's an opportunity to give a, a tip, do you, do you give a tip? You say, well, I'm not going to give a tip. When you are at a restaurant, do you give a good tip? Are you, are you, you know, are you healthy with that? The point is, are these resources there just for you to kind of watch every dollar and cents, or are they there also for you to be a blessing? Friends, this is, this is a warning to not steal, to not cheat, but to live honest lives and to make an honest living. So it's not a, it's not a sin to be wealthy, but it is sin when you're wealthy to treat others, especially the poor, with injustice. And friends, when this happens, it should be dealt with 
appropriately. All right, let's move on. Not only is the problem of hoarding, there's a problem of injustice, but there's also a problem of extravagance. Look at verse 5. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And friends, this is a picture of extreme extravagance and immorality. The rich have pampered themselves so much that they're like fattened cattle ready for slaughter. They've grown fat in body, in mind, in spirit. And friends, there's a sense that in their indulgence, they've lost touch with reality. They've been so fattened that they don't even see how enslaved they are to their pleasures. They don't understand the struggle that people go through. They don't sit, or they sit in their comfort and they complain about minuscule things and they fail to use their wealth to solve problems that are real, that people are actually going through. And so James throws in the expression, you have lived on the earth. And it reminds us of the difference between earthly riches and heavenly riches, doesn't it? There is a big difference. Those who live in luxury on the earth will often be those who weep and wail for eternity, as in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the story there. Lazarus always came outside the house and you know, hoping for, for some things, from some help, but no help was given. And when the two men died, Lazarus is carried to Abraham's bosoms, uh, and the rich man was tormented in Hades, and the rich man called to Abraham to have Lazarus give him some water to cool his tongue. But Abraham responds, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And friends, this is the reversal that will happen in eternity, the reversal of those who are rich in this world but without faith in Christ and those who are poor in this world but who are rich in their faith. Friends, this is an important reminder to us. If we are pursuing the riches of this world, we are likely not pursuing the riches of our walk with God and our faith in him. Then, of course, there's the problem of violence. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Now, interesting here is this is they're actually not the ones who are doing this, are they? They're the ones who are the means by which these things are getting done. They're using the court system. They're using whatever tools that they want to in order to bring out some kind of judicial action but the reason they're able to do it is because of their wealth. Now, see, in, in most societies of antiquity, and in many societies today, there was little concept of rule by impartial law. Those who had power and wealth on their side won in court, not those who had justice on their side. The courts were governed primarily by patronage, clan, tribe, not objective justice. And one of the truths that has been a foundational truth in Western society is liberty and justice for all. But no matter your ethnicity, your economic situation, your political affiliation, or other things, we are to be treated by the law as equals. And that's why Lady Justice stands blindfolded, expressing that the law is to be applied without regard to wealth, power, or any other status. That's why we are one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. That's how these truths crept into our thinking in the United States of America in particular. But in this case, where James is speaking, it is the rich who are shaped by the world's wisdom who condemn and murder the righteous person. Now, although this is not a direct reference to Jesus, he is the righteous person par excellence. An innocent man murdered by those who consumed with worldly wisdom worked together to bring about his end. Judas sold the 
sold, the priests condemned, the Romans murdered, the innocent man, Jesus, of course, who did not resist by God's eternal plan, the only perfectly innocent man endured death so that we might not die. So although James doesn't condemn riches per se, he is telling us that riches can lead to sin. If they are accumulated through injustice, if they're used for self-indulgence, if they breed insolence and lawlessness. And friends, the primary cure for all these ills is to use wealth as the Lord prescribes. So James is not giving us necessarily counsel on how we are to use our wealth, but he is emphasizing the fact that this is what worldly wisdom and wealth produce. So avoid it. Don't be a hoarder. Yes, keep some for your own enjoyment. Yes, have some for your future. Give much to the Lord in his work. But there are other things that we need to do. If we're going to, you know, we're going to actually use our resources for his glory. And one of them is this, to, to lift our eyes from material things. And I realize that's a hard thing to say right before Christmas, isn't it? Because we're so drawn to material things. But look, we're, we're living in these last days. We're near the day of slaughter. The Lord is coming. His coming is near. So as faithful stewards with our eyes fixed on heaven, we, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we seek to live our lives in a way that would please him. And certainly living life means that we have resources, and some of us are going to have more resources than others, but then we also see these resources as the means by which God is going to work through his people to accomplish his purposes. Now, you've heard uh, Albert, I think a couple of weeks ago, as he was standing up here and giving announcements, and he was saying, I just, I just want to praise God for Gateway Bible Church, because you are faithful givers, and in particular, to missions. And it's true. God has done much through our church and through the resources that you have given sacrificially out of your abundance. Praise God for that. And I want to see that continue, but there's, there's still always a challenge in our hearts, isn't there? What are we going to do with the resources that we have? I want to end today. Uh, I know, don't be shocked. We've got 15 minutes and I'm saying I'm ending, right? Um, notice I'm not wearing a watch today, all right? So um, concluding thoughts. I have three things I want to say just as we close. I think this is, um, this is a hard passage for us to go through because I, I do think you're, you're sitting there and you're processing this, and there's a temptation to say, this is about them, this is not about me. But what James is saying is, yes, this is about them, but it's about you too. So I want to begin here with a warning, um, and I want to tell you a little bit of a story. I had a friend who was a missionary in Central uh, America, good brother, loved the Lord, um, passionate about ministry, serving as a pastor in, this, in a town. Um, church was relatively new, um, uh, very active, doing a lot of ministry, helping the people there. And when you are on the mission field, you're always thankful for, for people to come alongside and help. And um, he and his wife, he had, what, five kids. Um, and, you know, they, they, they met by mutual acquaintance another family from the United States of America. They also had a bunch of kids. And they would get together then. Um, not necessarily, they didn't attend his church, but they would get together as, as friends and families and their kids would play, all believers. And what was interesting was that um, my, my friend and, and this new acquaintance of his, the gentleman, um, both just were aligned theologically, had the same passions, listened to the same people, just loved to talk about God and his word and his theology. Um, and uh, so it was a great encouragement for him. This man, um, his, his vocation was that he dealt with, um, with investments and finances and that kind of stuff, and that's how he was able to live where he was living. And uh, so over time, Steve asked some questions and uh, interacted with this gentleman. And this gentleman said, well, you know, there is, there is an investment that you could put your money in, um, but it requires at least $10,000. And 
and it has proven true to, to yield a good investment over time, I mean, really, really good investment. And of course, my friend didn't have a lot of money. They took their savings. It was more than the $10,000, and they entrusted it to this gentleman. And surprisingly, um, that next year, um, his investment yielded 20%. That's a pretty good return. And uh, so it's, you know, it, this, this man's like, hey, this is great. You know, um, I want to encourage you. Um, this is, you know, you got 20% yield. I would recommend you just leave it in there, and um, then uh, you'll obviously be able to make more money because you've left it in there. Um, he did that, and then um, about six months later, this man was arrested and extradited to the United States for fraud and running a Ponzi scheme. Now, why do I share all that? Well, clearly in this situation, my friend's investment was just throwing the money into the Ponzi scheme. The, the investment amount that he got, the 20%, was just a bunch of numbers that this guy was giving him. It wasn't real. Of course, the encouragement that this, this guy was giving him was to say, well, just leave it in there. Let it, you know, it was all fabricated, right? And yet, this person was able to connect with this other believer build a relationship so that they could actually glean from them some finances and steal it ultimately. And, and, and here's my warning, friends. My warning is this. Unfortunately, there are people under the name of Christianity who talk the talk, who in a sense walk the walk, who interact and put themselves in places to prey on you. Be warned. And if you're ever going to be putting a lot of money into some kind of investment that's kind of an unusual thing, seek counsel, seek advice. Oh, but we're going to make so much money here. You don't understand. You don't. Whoa, slow down. What's the old saying? If it sounds too good to be true, what? All right, just, be, be, just because someone's a believer. And just because they may have been walking with you for a while doesn't necessarily mean that it's right, it's good, it's healthy. All right? It's a sad reality, friends, but it's a warning. Secondly, I want to give you a challenge. Wealth itself is not a sin, but sin comes in three ways. First, it comes in how we get our wealth. Right? Do we get our wealth at the expense of our neighbor? Are we willing to, to, to do, or what are we willing to do in order to make a profit? And here's some things you have to, you have to wrestle with. When you go out and you try and find a job, uh, I don't know, there are some salesmen out there that may be selling an inferior product. What do you do with that? Do you pretend that that product is actually better than it really is? You have a conscience as a believer to speak truth. All right? I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there. How are you making your money? Something to consider here, right? Secondly, it comes um, in our heart attitude toward our wealth. So it comes in how we get our wealth, but it also comes in our heart attitude toward wealth. And these are some of the things that our text has been wrestling with and causing us to see. Do we love that wealth, that worldly wealth, too much rather than loving God and fearing Him above else? Third, it comes in our use of wealth. Are we giving to the Lord, giving significant portions of our wealth for the things of God? Are we contributing to the needy as God gives us opportunity and that we have applied discernment toward? Are we stewarding our life for his glory? Probably there are some in here that have undermined their ability to give to the Lord or help others because of past decisions that were fashion and shape by the wisdom of the world. <laughs> and friends, there is a way out. There's a God-centered way out. And I would encourage you to consider what God says rather than what the world says with its wisdom. All right? It's a challenge, friends. It's a challenge to be mindful about how you're using your wealth. And finally, an encouragement. It may not seem like it, but compared to most of the people in the world, who we who live here in the Bay Area are extremely wealthy. 
If you own a home and you're talking to someone from the Midwest and they say, how much is your home worth? And you tell them and their jaw drops. Now, you know it's relative because you live here in the Bay Area and your home is just a basic average home. And that's just people in the Midwest. What about if you were to go to Bolivia? All right? Or some parts of Africa and say, well, this is how much my home is worth. Now, I realize much of that worth is in the bank, right? But you understand, we actually have great resources. But that comes with a great responsibility. And it comes with a great opportunity. And here's, here's I guess, where I want to go. The Bay Area is an extremely wealthy area. They say that the, the, the amount of money that is made in the Silicon Valley is far more than many countries around the world. The gross national product, if you want to put it out, that their, their, their income and the, the money. We're living in a wealthy area. Now, having said that, what are we going to do with the wealth that God has given us? We right now, as a people in this area and certainly in this church, have the great privilege and opportunity of using those resources to invest in kingdom realities. I'm not telling you where to invest it. My point is this. Use your wealth for the glory of God. Now, one of the reasons that I, as a pastor, take time to go to places like Bolivia or Ukraine, I know the church is, is behind this. This is our endeavor, and many times we have a number of people that are going on these things. But hear this. Number one, we have the finances to do it, to help other people. When I go to Bolivia and there's a pastor who's traveled two days by bus to come to a conference who says, we don't have anything like this. We don't have pastor's conferences like this. I think to myself, the money that we are investing is well invested because they don't have the resources for it. What are we doing with it? We're doing the best that we can with what we have to try and have an impact in a couple of places in the world. Secondly, most of us in here have a pretty decent education. You guys are smart. You've been privileged with good schooling. Many of you have gone to college. Taking those things that you've learned, having the ability to help others is a wonderful tool. It's not just for you. That is also part of God's economy in your life. So are you stewarding that? Are you using that for him? God's given us a responsibility then not just to go and have the finances to do it, but then to take the knowledge that we have and impart it to other people who don't have that privilege. Third is this. Many of us are able to get time off of work and use that time for God's glory. What are we doing with that? How are we using those things? Now, I'm just trying to be practical here to say, listen, these are things that God has given us. We have abundance. How are we then using it to bring about God's purposes, not just here in Castro Valley, but, but wherever else God has given us an opportunity to serve? My friends, we're not going to be able to do that if our hearts are being fashioned and shaped by the world's thinking. It takes a, a renewed mind that has been fashioned and shaped by God and his word to say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to release these resources. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, do something with my hoarding, un undo it, give things away, whatever it might be. This comes as a result of God working on your heart. But there's a challenge because we have been so fashioned and shaped by the world's thinking in these areas. Now, I just want to encourage you to, to go home, talk with your, your spouse, think these things through. What are we doing? What should we not be doing? What can we start doing as it relates to our resources so that we're not caught in this trap? Lord, help us today. These are, these are difficult issues. And Lord, these are not just simply throw more money in the, in the offering plate and everything's going to be fine issues. These are issues of the heart that we must settle, that we must wrestle with. You've given us this word. You've given us this warning here about the danger of 
of worldly wealth, to be an example for us of what to avoid and how not to be caught up in it, but to learn from it and seek then to live in a way that would be contrary to that because it's conforming to what you desire for us to do. Help us today, Lord. We may not think that we have much or much of what we have seems to be tied up in so many things. But Lord, help us to be mindful of what you want us to do with it. Help us to be wise, practical, because that wisdom and practicality is being shaped by your truth. We ask now, Lord, for you to be glorified in our response to this. In your precious name, amen.